song minister to you today and will continue in the future as we ponder our great God. He's the ancient of days and that has implications for our life and how we live our Christian faith. So if you would turn with me now in your Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Would you turn with me to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation? We'll be in chapter one this morning, focusing our efforts on verses four through eight, verses four through eight. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Again, Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8, as we take a look at heaven's salute to suffering saints. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you this morning that you are a God of grace and peace, and that you bestow these things on us through our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who himself is the embodiment of grace and peace. We thank you, Father, this morning for your grace to us. We thank you that you have offered to us your unmerited favor. It is unearned, it is outrageous, it is undeserved. We thank you that you are um, that you're the God of all grace and that you have saved us, Ephesians teaches us, uh, by your grace through our faith. We thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have sent for us your Son, the Lamb who has loved us and has freed us, freed us from our sins, all because of your good grace. We thank you, Father, that your grace to us is not only in the past tense, that you have given us your grace through faith in Christ, but that even now you sustain us in our lives through your grace. We thank you that it is sufficient for us and it meets our needs where we're at. We thank you that because um, your power is made perfect in our weakness, we can say along with Paul that we boast in it because we know that your power rests upon us. Father, we confess that we are weak people, that we are often overwhelmed by, by fears and concerns and anxieties. We confess that events in our lives and in the world around us uh, cause us to tremble. The kings and the nations, they rage. Father, we struggle with temptation and pressures abound that swirl around us. And though all of these things are true, we thank you, Father that your word teaches that though the nations rage and the kingdoms rise and fall, that there, is, that there is one king reigning over all, and that is King Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you're the ruler of the kings of the earth, and that you have made us a part of your kingdom, and that you have called us to be priests to serve your Lord and God. And so help us, we pray, not to fear, but to trust in you. We thank you not only for past grace and for the grace that you give us moment by moment, but we thank you for future grace, for grace that is promised to us. We thank you in particular, as we'll see this morning, that you promise that you will raise up our bodies from the grave and that your son Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, we believe And we anticipate that you will usher in one day a new heaven and a new earth. And this is is future grace to us. A world where sin's curse will no longer ravage us or the earth. 
We look forward to the day when you will dwell with us and that you will be our God and we will be your people and every tear will be wiped away and death will be put to death and all mourning and all crying and all pain will cease. This is our hope, God. You're gracious to us. Until then, we anticipate um, the coming of your Son. And though we may not understand what the future brings, we may not understand the circumstances in our lives, we will watch and we will wait for our Savior King. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Lord, come. And God's people said, So I think everybody gets um, enjoys getting letters in the mail. I know oftentimes when we go to the mailbox, it's not a pleasant experience because there are bills waiting and that sort of thing. But it's a joyous thing, is it not, to go to the mailbox and to see that there is a personal letter written to you. Uh, my daughter wrote one such letter and sent it to her grandmother, my, my mother, who lives in Texas, and she was particularly touched by it. You can see it on the screen here behind me, and if you can't read her handwriting, that's okay. I think I've tried to interpret it. She writes, To Grandma, I love you so much. I loved playing Go Fish and Uno and Farkle with you. I'm so sad that you left. I hope you feel good to be back in Texas. Now, can you imagine being a grandma and getting that in the mail and how that makes you feel? It's wonderful uh, to get stuff like this and to, to be the recipient of, of letters. We can move on from that. But I sort of want to now shift the illustration and to ask you to put yourself not in the position of receiving a, a letter, but of writing a letter. So I want you to imagine this scenario, and maybe it's true for you, maybe it's not. Uh, but here's the scenario. You have a dear friend a brother or a sister in Christ, and they are um, a Christian, but they are struggling. And you've known this for a while. They're struggling just just with the pressure and the cost of being a Christian. Uh, maybe they recently have lost a longtime friend because that friend of theirs doesn't see eye to eye about, say, matters of, of sexuality. And so, and so the friendship has, has splintered, and they're struggling with that. Maybe maybe she's tired of just sort of being seen as the holy roller at work. Everybody at work knows that she's a Christian, and it's just hard. Or maybe it's the, the young man who, he's the only person on the basketball team who, who doesn't go out and party after the game. Maybe this friend of yours, um, maybe they're just starting to get angry with God, if they were honest. They were kind of, they're just wondering, is it really worth it? I mean, is, is living this Christian life really worth it? Maybe they're tired of forgiving their wife from this, for the same old offense. Maybe your friend, maybe she's, she's weary of being the black sheep in the family. She's the super Christian, and she gets all the flack from the family. And so you feel like you want to write him or her a letter. Some people still do that, you know, like write a real letter, like on paper with ink and stuff, and you put it in the mail. I suppose an email will work. But you want to send them a letter, and you want to think deeply about, about addressing the, the concerns of your friend. And so here's the question that I want to pose to you. What is it that you feel like is most important to communicate to your friend? I mean, what is it that you really want to hone in on? 
What do you want to focus on? What is, what is it that, that, that they really need to hear? It could include a lot of things. What are you going to say? Well, as we turn to, Rome, uh, to Revelation chapter 1, this morning the Apostle John finds himself in a very similar place with pen and ink in hand. As he opens this letter, which is a long book, as he writes to his friends who are Christians and churches scattered throughout Central Asia. And he's, he's writing to them. They're feeling the pressure of being faithful to Jesus. They're pondering whether they should quit altogether. And what is it, do you think, that John will focus on first? I mean, there are a lot of things that he's going to communicate in this letter. But what is the first thing that he's going to communicate as he opens his letter to these suffering saints, these Christians that are feeling the pressure of faithfulness to Christ? What is it, do you think, that John thinks that they need? And what is it, do you think, that people like your friend, and maybe you are your friend, maybe that's you, what is it that we need in that circumstance the most? Well, what he's going to give them, are you ready? What he's going to give them is a bigger, clearer picture of who God is. That's what he's going to give them. A bigger picture of their glorious God, of who he is and what he has done. Friends, it's amazing that we as Christians talk with one another about all sorts of things that are good and helpful and true. We talk about the Bible, and we talk about our, our, our families, and we talk about our feelings, and all of these things are good. But friends, how, how little do we really talk with one another simply about our God? I mean, just simply do we say, this is who our God is. And yet, that is exactly what John thinks, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we need. Not a moral pep talk. We need a glimpse of God. And so that's how John begins. A few weeks ago, we saw the opening prologue of this chapter, this, this book in verses 1 through 3. And now we have, essentially, it's, a, it's, it's an opening to... A letter. It's an opening to a letter. He, he formally begins his letter, but it's sort of an abnormal way to begin a letter. And you'll see that as we read the text. He begins in a pretty normal way. He greets the churches. He identifies himself as the writer. But from there, it's, it's, it's sort of abnormal, at least to our ears. Because after that, we see there's a blessing. There's a blessing. In fact, we can see this on the screen behind me. There's a preview. We see there's a, there's a greeting, and, there's, and then there's this blessing, grace and peace to you. And this grace and peace comes from our triune God, from God the Father and God the Spirit and from God the Son. And then speaking of, of God the Son, we see Paul burst forth in this doxology, this praise to Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And then the mention of Jesus' redemptive work leads to this announcement from John, essentially from the Old Testament in verse 7, of the second coming of Jesus. He announces that it's coming, our Redeemer's glorious return. And then these verses end in verse 8. As God the Father gets in on the action, He Himself speaks and He declares to these suffering saints who are feeling pinched in pressure from the world, this is who I am. 
And so that's where we're going this morning. Let's begin uh, simply by reading the text together. So we'll start in Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that is a reading of God's holy word. So let's begin with the greeting. At the very beginning of verse 4, John, he begins by identifying himself to the churches. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. See, unlike uh, letters or emails that we typically write, right? We, we typically typically begin by <clears throat> by writing whom we're addressing, right? So, dear so and so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, from Trey, right? Well, it's actually reversed here. John begins by identifying who he is, and he simply only needs to say his first name, right? Uh, he doesn't say John the apostle, John the disciple, John, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He just says John. It's, it's as if they might actually know him, and in reality, they did. In fact, they knew him. He was at, likely, at this point, the last remaining uh, disciple of Jesus, and so they knew him by name. In fact, the church at Ephesus knew him essentially as their pastor elder for a number of years, and so this is a, 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 a man that they all are familiar with. So all John has to say is, is his first name. Sort of like celebrities today that are maybe often known by their first name. So you know who Madonna is? You know who LeBron is? You know who Bono is? If you don't know Bono, you should. You know who those people are, right? First name, he just says, John. It's, it's me, John, you know. He writes to the seven churches, as we'll learn a little bit more about in verse 9. They were essentially in, in central, <clears throat> central Asia there. And so, John, it's me. I'm writing to you, the seven churches in the province of Asia. And so his greeting then quickly moves into a blessing. At the tail end of verse 4 and on into verse 5, this is very common for letters in those days, but it is significant. It's not for us just to, to sort of breeze on by. Let's read the blessing. Grace and peace, he says, to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is, that is some blessing, is it not? We see that John gives a blessing to these churches in the name of our triune God. First, the, the essence of the blessing is found in these two little words. Grace, God's unmerited, unearned, spectacular favor, and Peace, that is the, the resulting harmony, if you will, that results because of God's grace. In fact, most of the New Testament letters begin this way. Grace and peace, it was a very common writing, but it's not just a mere formality. This is not just sort of John wasting words because John's blessing 
He's saying grace to you and peace to you. This blessing bestows what it proclaims. In other words, it's not just, hey, I, I wish things, these things upon you, but he is praying and believing that God is going to actually give them grace and peace. It's sort of like the difference between, you know, we just came out of the holiday season, and so it's not uncommon uh, during December. Uh, if I meet you on the street, I might say, Merry Christmas to you, right? It's a greeting, Merry Christmas. I'm wishing that your Christmas might go well. But let me ask you a question. Do I really have much power to ensure that your Christmas is going to go well? Not really. You know, I could give you a gift and that would be great. But I I can't really make that happen, right? I'm just wishing it. Merry Christmas. I hope you have a great holiday season, right? However, if the President of the United States, for instance, says something to you like, I declare that you are pardoned. I declare your pardon. Does he have the power to make that happen? Yes, he does. This is sort of the essence of this greeting. John not only wishes it, but he's bestowing the grace of God and the peace that results on these congregations. Now notice, um, where, where does grace and peace come from? We see the blessing, grace and peace, but, but to whom does it come from? Well, we see, right? Look at, look, at, look at the text. Grace and peace, first of all, from God the Father. Grace and peace to you, number one, from him who is and who was and who is to come. The phrase is spoken, in fact, by God the Father himself at the end of our section today in verse 8. From him who is and who was and who is to, is to come. This speaks to the fact that the Father is eternally existent. He, he is, present tense. He, he who was, he always existed. He is the one who is to come. He will be in the future. He is now. He always has been. He will be forever. You could, you could put it this way. God the Father here, he, he is the constant reality in the universe. And so let me ask you a question. Why does that matter for a Christian like your friend that you're supposed to write a letter to? Or maybe you are the friend. You're experiencing pressure. The world is, is well, it's treating you poorly. You, you wonder if this Christian life, is it worth living? And there are things happening like, like to the Christians in the first century where there were pressures from both government and, 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 and the citizenship in their town and they're, and they're feeling the pinch and, and there's uncertainty Friends, do you ever feel that way? That there's uncertainty in your life? That you don't quite know what the future holds? Well, these Christians felt that as well. And so grace and peace comes from the one who is and who was and to, who is to come. Friends, it matters because when our future is uncertain from our perspective, we need to know that we receive grace and peace and we trust in the one whose future is absolutely certain. The one who exercises sovereign control over the details, not only of our lives, but the details of of all of history. It's like John is saying, God the Father, he he, he, he who is and who was and who is to come. It's like he's saying, friends, your struggles are not eternal, right? They will pass. God, he is eternal. So grace and peace from the Father, but but also, secondly, grace and, and peace from from the Holy Spirit, I believe. And so it continues. Grace and peace to you from, from him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come. And, so number two, 
It comes from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, admittingly, this is a curious phrase. And it has been interpreted in a whole host of ways. And so I will humbly give you what I think is my best understanding of who these seven spirits before his throne are. What, what, what does this mean? I think the best interpretation is that this is a reference to the full or complete power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's the reason why. I'll try to make it short. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we see another reference to these seven spirits. However, the seven spirits are pictured as, imagine in your mind, lamps. So think of lamps in your mind. Seven blazing lamps that stand before the throne of God. And so we have seven spirits. They're before his throne. A little bit later, we see that they are seven blazing lamps before the throne of God. However, if you keep reading in chapter 5, verse 6, we see that the seven spirits are symbolized or portrayed as seven eyes. I know. This book is going to get weird, right? Seven eyes. In fact, the lamb who was slain, who is a reference to Jesus, is said to have seven eyes. And so here's the question. Is John just like confused? Well, which is it, John? Seven spirits before the throne? Well, seven lamps, seven eyes. What's the deal? Well, I think that all of these images come to a head in Zechariah chapter 4. That's an Old Testament book. Zechariah chapter 4, where I'll save you the details. Read it yourselves. But there's a vision that God gives, and there is a picture of seven lamps. Have we seen that before? Yep, seven lamps. And there also are seven eyes. Have we seen that before? Yep, seven eyes. And very clearly in that vision, we see that God is communicating to the prophet Zechariah that those two images of lamps and eyes clearly represent the power of the Holy Spirit. You with me? The power of the Holy Spirit. The circumstance was seemingly an impossible one. There's a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Maybe you've heard of him. And his task was to to help rebuild the temple, but it was in shambles. It was a difficult circumstance that the people of God were facing. And yet there's this vision to encourage him that, and I quote Zechariah here, that the temple is going to be built not by might. In other words, it's not going to be by your strength. Not by power. Not by your power is this going to be accomplished. But by my, do you know? Spirit, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so this is, I think, what is happening. This blessing is coming from the sevenfold power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does that matter? Well, Christians who are under pressure, like maybe you are even today, you're feeling tempted to cave in. You're feeling tempted to compromise. You're feeling the pinch from your family or from your friends or from your co-workers. It's getting hard to be a Christian. Like Zerubbabel, who is facing a seemingly impossible task, these first century Christians and us today are given the assurance that we aren't going to overcome, we aren't going to persevere, not by our might, not by our power, but by whose? The power of God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. And so the blessing comes from the Father and from the Spirit. And then third, we see that this blessing comes from God the Son. Grace and peace comes also, in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. Now, who is Jesus Christ? Does it matter? From Jesus Christ, who is 
Number one, the faithful witness. Number two, the firstborn from the dead. And number three, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here Jesus is described in three phrases that are meant to encourage suffering, besieged believers. Number one, Jesus is said to be the faithful witness. This is, uh, this is courtroom language, right? Think about a courtroom. The lawyers call whom to the stand? They, they call their witnesses, right? And the witnesses speak about what they see and know, and they're telling the truth. It's a legal term. In fact, the Greek word is, if I can not butcher it, martus, martus, which actually sounds very much like a word that it's associated with in the book. And that is the word, can you guess, martus? What do we call Christians who suffer even death because of their faith? Martyrs. Martyrs. This is a word that is said throughout the rest of the book of Revelation to describe people, Christians, who are faithful even to the point of death in their allegiance to God. And here, Jesus Christ is said to be just that. He is the faithful witness. In other words, during his life and during his ministry, did he tell the truth? Yes or no? Yes, he spoke the truth, even when it cost him. In fact, before Pontius Pilate, he said these words, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Now let me ask you a question. Jesus spoke the truth, and did it cost him his life? Yes, he was faithful even unto death. Friends, is that what God calls the followers of Jesus to be? Yes, even to the point of death. He's the faithful witness. It's like John is presenting Jesus as our model. It's like he's saying, I know it's hard to be a witness in this world. I know you're tempted to give in. I know the cost is often high and the reward is small. But Jesus, look to him. He's the faithful witness. He didn't give in. Christian, don't you give in either. So Jesus is the faithful witness. But secondly, notice he's described as the firstborn The firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That he's the firstborn from the dead. Essentially, this means that he was the first human being to be resurrected from death in a glorified, eternal body. Okay, you with me? That's what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. He was the first, not just to be resurrected. There were others. He was the first to be resurrected in, in, in a body that would live forever in glory. He's the firstborn, the first of many more to come. Think of it this way. He is, the Bible says, he is, he's the second Adam, right? He's a new type of human being. Adam 1.0, the guy who lived you know, back in the Old Testament. Um, did he have some glitches? Yeah, like he didn't quite work out, right? He had some glitches. And so then came Adam 2.0, and he worked perfectly. Because he was the son of God and the son of man. And he has redeemed a new type of humanity that will live on a new earth one day. He is the firstborn. In other words, Christian, what, we're, what John is saying is that if you are a believer in Christ, though you will die physically, that body will be resurrected. And you will live in a glorified body on a new earth forever and ever and ever because of your faith in Jesus. Is this good news? This is great news, right? If you face persecution, if you face pressure, and I doubt any of us will ever literally be killed because of our faith in Christ. It it could happen. But, But even if the worst thing happens to us in our mind because of our faith in Christ, guess what? 
We serve not only the faithful witness, but we serve the firstborn from the dead, right? He was raised to life, and we too will be. Third, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This little phrase points us ahead towards Revelation 19, where Jesus, upon his return to the earth, is said to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. But, but friends, he's not only in the future going to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Is he now? Yes or no? Please say yes. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes, he is now, presently, the ruler of the kings of the earth. All authority is given unto me, says Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth. The question is not whether he is king. He is king. The question is, um, is there opposition? Are there rebels to King Jesus out there? Yes? Many, many, many rebels to King Jesus. There is opposition. But there will be a day, Paul says, where every knee will bow, those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what happens then on the heels of this greeting is a doxology at the tail end of verse 5. It is it is quite simply, I think, a spontaneous outburst of praise, specifically praise unto Jesus. And, and, and the simple application here is that when we think about who God is and we're astounded by that, what's an appropriate response? We praise Him, right? And so we see that happening. To Him who loves us and has freed us from, uh, freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so in this doxology, we go from who Jesus is to praise for what he has done for us. And John lists three things. Three things for for what Jesus has done on our behalf. Three praiseworthy things. What's the first? It's quite simple and yet profound. To him who loves us. Christians, sometimes it's good for us to be reminded that Jesus loves us. And it's not past tense. He still loves us. Present tense. He will always love us because perfect love is incapable of degree. His love is His love. To Him who loves us, and notice quite simply the juxtaposition, the contrast, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is mighty. But he is a tender lover. He loves us. He's both of these things. We learn this in in Sunday school, right? In the the children's hymn. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Right here, right? To him who loves us, but not only that, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Meaning he has freed us from the penalty that we deserve, which is eternal death and hell, that our sins have earned us. He's freed us from that as Christians. He's freed us from sin's mastery over us so that we can live in freedom from sin progressively. And one day, and this is the culmination of the book, sin will be gone. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the very presence of sin will no longer be. Third, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and his father. This is language used in the Old Testament of, of the nation of Israel. They, they were a kingdom. They were, they were priests 
And so this is applied now to Christians that we collectively too, we are part of the kingdom of King Jesus because we are citizens of his kingdom. And we are priests. We, we, we serve his God and Father with all of our lives. And so because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we echo with John, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Just when you think that this is like a very fitting announcement, like, oh, this is a nice way to start a letter, the doxology, let's end on it, it's just good, it just keeps going. In verse, in verse 7, we see this announcement from John. Look, John says, and he's drawn from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. Look, speaking of Jesus, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will be glad because of him. Is that what it says? And all the people of the earth will do what? They will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. This announcement again points us forward to Revelation chapter 19. But notice two things. I think the audience here has changed. John very clearly is speaking to Christians. But now when he begins to talk about the second coming of Jesus, he's declaring it. Behold, he's coming in the clouds, Daniel chapter 7, uh, type language. And who's going to see him? Every eye is going to see him, even those who did what? Pierced him. Even those who pierced him. And so there's a shift in focus from believers to unbelievers, even those who pierced him. So here's a question that, that I have. In what sense, assuming this event hasn't happened, which it hasn't, Christ hasn't returned to the earth yet, In what sense have unbelievers on earth at that future time when Jesus Christ returns, how have they pierced him? Get the question? Now we know that this was fulfilled on the cross. We see that in the Gospels, right? Those who were involved in Jesus' crucifixion literally pierced him. They, they, They put him on a tree. But here, the language is that when he returns, people are going to mourn, and those people, in a sense, have pierced Jesus. How is that? He says that those who reject Jesus as Savior and King from the time of the cross to the time of his return, that they too have pierced Jesus with their pride and their indifference and their rejection of him. Friend, let me just say, if you are here today and Jesus is not your personal Savior, you have not taken refuge in Christ, if he is not your King, this describes you. You have pierced him. But thankfully, it's not too late. Would you turn to him even now, even today as your Savior? Today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. Friends, pierce him no longer. Notice, what will be the response? What will be the response of people who reject King Jesus when he returns? They will mourn because of him. And so this little opening ends with a declaration from God the Father in verse 8. Three important titles that we see for the Father appear in verse 8. And they sort of summarize the major themes so far. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. A repeat from verse 4, the Almighty. So the first title is the Alpha and the Omega. And if you know Greek, Alpha is the first letter in Greek. Omega is the last letter in Greek. So he's essentially saying, I am the A and Z. 
Fair enough, right? I am the A and Z. But, but essentially what he means is that I am the A and the Z and everything in between. Okay? So it's not just like start and, 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 and finish. Uh, God the Father is saying, I am the one who always has been and I am the one who always will be. And guess what? Everything from the beginning of creation to the end of creation, guess who's in charge? I am, right? In other words, he's sovereign over everything that takes place over the course of human history. He began this, this creation, and guess what? He's going to finish it, right? He is in control. And that's great news for those of us who live, oh, maybe we're at letter S or something, right? I don't know where we're at. S or T, right? Or maybe it's B, and we don't know it. But we're somewhere in there, right? He's going he's gonna to finish it. So we see this declaration. We see a repeat of his eternality. And, and then third, he's called the Almighty. The Almighty. Um, what do you think that that is implying? Almighty. It sort of describes itself, right? <laughs> it means that he has all power. All might. That he lacks uh, no uh, power. He's not impotent. He can do what he wants as he pleases. Everything that he desires, he brings about. Friends, is that good news when we face trials and temptations and hardships and pressure? That he is the Almighty. It absolutely is. And so, as we prepare to respond with our own song of praise to our triune God, here's where I want to sort of land this plane. So back to your letter. Back to your letter and your friend. There you are, pen and paper in hand, or maybe a laptop and your Gmail is open. What are you going to write to that fellow Christian? They're on the ropes. What are you going to say? Probably lots of things that you should and could say. But I would humbly suggest that we need to include what John included in his letter to these suffering saints. A heavy dose of God. Reminding us of who he is and what he has done. As A.W. Tozer once asserts in his book, what comes into your mind, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So friends, when we face pressure as Christians, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind about the God that we serve. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray, and we'll close with song. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we might see a bigger glimpse of who you are and of your Son and of your Holy Spirit. Lord, what we really need is to know you better. And so we ask that you would have done that and will continue to do that. And now we join in the hymn of praise, just as John reflexively praised you when he pondered who your Son is. So God, help us now to do so in song, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people stand. Stand.